Well, I hope you are enjoying this time in Mark's Gospel. We're looking at a collection of scenes in the life and ministry of Jesus in which there's something that's really exciting, a miracle, but then there's something else that's not unexciting, uh, but it's awkward, different. These are miracles, but they're miracles that are accompanied with unexpected results. We saw that last week. Uh, Jesus calms the storm, uh, but remember that that storm revealed the disciples' terror for their own lives. They're miracles, but they're something else as well. We're looking at Mark chapter 5 this morning. Uh, It's a long passage. I want to uh, dive uh, right in, but I want to introduce first our little theologians. Uh, Thank you for being here, for listening over the course of the sermon. I'd like for you to work on a very specific drawing for me. You've heard of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Pastor Molinax just mentioned that in his prayer, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus preaching from a high spot. This is a sermon on the shore of a lake. It's a little bit different. What I want you to draw is I want you to draw Jesus who's preaching a sermon on the shores of a lake. Well, where then is his audience? His audience is on the hillside behind him. It's a very rocky shore. And his audience is in the boat. It seems like the 12 disciples don't actually get out of the boat in this scene. But Jesus, there he is, preaching on a beach. It's a sermon on a beach. And an audience on the hillside, an audience on a boat. That's what I'd like for you to draw. Here's what I'd like for you to not draw. Don't draw demons and don't draw pigs. Simple, right? Jesus is preaching on the shore and there's an audience around him. The passage is Mark chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 20. Let me pray for us even before we read the passage. Join me in prayer, please. Uh, Father, thank you for speaking to us, making yourself known. Holy Spirit, would you carry this word deep inside of us with meaning, but also with application, that we would live this word as we go into the new week. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for doing this. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out, to, out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down to the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. 
The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is the word of our Lord. You know, you really can't make it very far in this passage without getting this rather haunted sensation. I mean, I've never grown up in a neighborhood in which there was one house in the neighborhood that seemed haunted. Uh, That is perhaps a bit of a cliché. I've never had that experience, but this passage, it seems to have hauntedness, well, written all over it. This place is dangerous. Remember in in verse 35 of chapter 4, Jesus, he's the one who seems to have picked this place out. Let us go across to the other side, Jesus says. But this place, wow, this is exactly the place you shouldn't go to. It has everything that marks it out as a place of spiritual danger, uh, particularly spiritual danger for someone who is a Jew. Now, the disciples, they knew that this was Gentile territory, and it is. But even as the boat begins to slowly uh, uh, approach this shore, uh, even then they would see, well, it's certainly Gentile country. We knew that, but there's more. There's more. I mean, for instance, there's pigs that seem to be everywhere. Verse 11 says that it's a great herd. A herd would normally be 300, but it seems elsewhere in the passage that, it's, that there would be uh, something like 2,000 two, uh, pigs. And you seem to be able to view them from the shore. Could you imagine as the boat uh, comes to the shore hearing 2,000 pigs? And this is a mountainous territory, and inside the mountain there are various uh, caves. Presumably that's what the tombs were. These were uh, caves, and they had uh, tombs uh, in them, or, or tombs that were built into portions of caves, but not all the caves were tombs. And not only are they looking up on the hillside and seeing thousands of pigs, hearing thousands of pigs, but death is really everywhere. This is exactly the place you don't stop. Move along. Try another dock. And then in verse 5, notice that Mark is very clear that Jesus stepped out of the boat. But he only mentions Jesus. And I think that if I were in that boat, I would be happy to let Jesus step out of the boat and I'd wait and see. Jesus, he steps right out of the boat onto this haunted shore. Now, what this passage is really about doesn't actually arise until we stop and consider the spectators of this passage. I really believe that that's how we understand the thrust and the application of this passage, is we stop and consider the spectators, and the spectators are the herdsmen. The herdsmen are present. You see them in verse 14. You have to wait 13 verses before the herdsmen are announced, but they're there. 
And you also have the disciples, and the disciples are presumed to be there, although they're utterly silent in this entire passage. Did that, did that stand out to you at all? But there's the audience. When you begin to think about then the audience, you, you can see the thrust and the application. And we could say that this passage is all about demon possession, about man, uh, a man who is uh, demon-possessed, and about pigs. Or we could say that this passage is all about spiritual warfare. Or we could say that this passage is all about gospel incursion into uh, Gentile territory. But I don't think any of those are the thrust and application of this passage. The herdsmen and disciples, they're watching And their take, what it is that they glean from what they see, that tells us everything about the thrust and the application of the passage. Here's what I believe the passage is about. The passage is about God's saving purpose in Jesus that disrupts every other human purpose. God's saving purpose in Jesus, God reclaiming his children through Jesus, that purpose actually disrupts every other human purpose. But even still... Dealing with Jesus Christ as the very center of human flourishing, of human peace. You see, it's a bit of a biting theme here. That God's saving purpose in Jesus actually disrupts our purposes. But even though that's the case, dealing with Jesus is the very center of our human flourishing and peace. And we begin just by examining the man. And then we go from the man to examine the kind of interaction that Jesus has with him, which I think is an interaction about authority. And then we find ourselves in the application. The man, the authority, and the application. Verses 3 through 6, we're told quite a bit about this man, aren't we? I mean, there's a lot of desperate people in Mark's gospel. The disciples, weren't they just crying out because they believed they were perishing? They were desperate. And then a couple of weeks from now, we're going to look at a dad whose 12-year-old girl is slowly dying before his very eyes. And we're also going to meet a woman who has been slowly bleeding to death for some 12 years. A lot of desperation. And here's the desperation before us in this passage. We have a homeless man. And not only is he homeless, he appears to be then naked. He's not clothed until the end of the passage. And he lives among the tombs, if you can call that his home. He sleeps actually in a cave of death. Think about that. When he goes into a cave to sleep, making that his makeshift home, he's sleeping right next to death. And this man's task day and night, we're told in verse 5, is uh, twofold. He's crying out among the hills. How evocative is that language? He's crying out among the hills. But even as he's crying out among the hills and he can be heard, he's doing something very deeply personal to himself. He's cutting himself. Now we begin to think this man's so desperate that he lives just outside of a tomb, but everything about his life seems to say that he'd rather be inside of a tomb, cutting himself. Do you think cutting himself even to the point, well, of death? And what we know about his desperation is he's utterly unable to help himself. And in fact, we would think of a man like this, if there's any help at all for him, it has to come from outside. But Mark's also very clear to tell us that, well, that's not going to happen either. Because he needs mercy, but no one has mercy for him. We can can assume that this man has a family that lives nearby in the city. We don't have to assume that he has a home. Verse 19 tells us he has a home. He has a family and he has a home. Verse verse 19 also tells us that he has friends. He has family, a home, and he has friends. 
but none of those are sources for his help. Everyone around him is either too clueless of how exactly to help him, that might be somewhat sincere, or everyone around him is too terrified to get near to him, and so they shackle and chain him. It may be a mix of both of those things. But interestingly enough, the people around him, the people who he really needs to help him, are are people who not only can't help him, uh, but they're people who don't help him. I've wondered in this passage why it is that they don't simply kill the man. They can't help him. They're clearly afraid of him. Just kill him. But they don't. And perhaps because they knew him. He has family, he has a home, and he has friends. It may be that this is just an ethic of human dignity for all. You can't kill him. But this man, he needs mercy. Verse 19 tells us that. He needs that mercy to come from outside of himself. He's personally despondent and desperate. And his community, though it's close to him geographically, and though he once used to be a part of that community, his community now is, well, useless to him. If you can just cut through in this passage to the, uh, the real heart of it, if you can uh, overlook for a moment the strangeness of it, the presence of demons, the nakedness of this man, the, the oddity of him living among the tombs, if you can just for a moment set that aside, what, this Bible says, what the Bible says about this particular man is really what the Bible says about all humanity. What we really and truly need, no human being can provide. That's what the Bible says about every human being. What we really and truly need, no one can provide except God himself. We can't provide it. And no one that we could reach out to uh, who is a creature like us could provide it. We actually need mercy from outside of us. And we need mercy that's actually divine. Now, this is the man. But notice what happens in verse 7. This man, he's uh, possessed by demons. And and we don't quite understand his his motives. We don't understand if these are the man's motives uh, that impels his actions. Or if it's the motives of the demons that impel his actions. Or if there's some kind of blend between the two. I don't know that either. But apparently Mark doesn't believe that we need to know how exactly these, uh, the will of the demons and the will of the man work together. We don't have to understand that. Just look how the scene forms. Remember, it's Jesus who stepped out of the boat. Jesus, he enters into this arena, as it were. And verse 11 tells us that there's some 2,000 pigs that are in view, but also the herdsmen would be in view as well. Herdsmen who are watching the pigs, they're up there in the hills. And the disciples, they don't seem to get out of the boat. The disciples then would be behind Jesus. They're watching from the boat, unsure if they're ready to get out of the boat. They want to wait and see what happens. And really the, the most action, apart from Jesus himself stepping out of the boat... The most action actually comes from this man. Even verse 1 tells us that immediately he met Jesus out of the tombs. We go a few verses later in verse 6 and we see that when the man saw Jesus from afar, he ran, he fell down before him. What's happening in this scene? 
But Jesus seemed to be taking, seems to be taking the singular action of getting out on the shore and this man uh, rushing towards him, but everyone else hanging back and watching. Well, I can't tell you what the temptation is when we read this passage. You know what the temptation is? The temptation is to read this entire passage as if it's some kind of battle that's playing out on the shore. Uh, Jesus, he's going up against the forces of evil. And the tension builds because we learn that the forces of evil, uh, it's a multitude. And here Jesus seems to be unmatched. He does a very small action stepping out of the boat. And this man comes rushing towards him. And everyone with bated breath is watching to see what will happen. And we think that the setting, because it's so ominous, is going to be a setting in which the power of the superhero unfolds before our very eyes. It could be that we just watch way too many superhero movies for our own good because that's not what's happening here. It's not a battle. Let me prove that to you. Verse 7, this uh, man uh, comes to Jesus and almost with complete naturalness in his voice, he uses the longest title that's applied to Jesus in Mark's entire gospel. It comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. This is a wonderfully clear connection between Jesus of Nazareth, the the, uh, carpenter from uh, Nazareth who brings disciples around him, a connection between Jesus and the, the, the vaunted Old Testament name of God as the very chief of all gods, the most high God. And almost to taunt this man, Jesus says in verse 9, what's your name? What's your name? You know my name. Everyone knows my name. What's yours, the man who's not known? Jesus, I suspect, knows, but he asks him. The man, in verse 7, actually pleads with Jesus, I adjure you by God. He actually wants Jesus to do something. He's desperate. I'm, I'm not sure why the ESV uses the word adjure. Have you ever in your life used that word? We don't even hear that, but there, you, there it is. I adjure you by God. It, it means he implores. He, he's asking Jesus to literally swear on the name of the Most High God to do something. The demon gives his own name is Legion, but really Legion isn't even a name. It's almost a, a veiled threat. <clears throat> a Legion would be 5,400 soldiers. And yet, even though that's the case, the Legion is a large number. I mean, look at verse 12. All of the demons together are begging. Not just one. Mark makes sure we know. All of them are begging. Now, I ask, does this sound like a battle to you? It's not a battle. The battle's done. This is something else. This is a request for permission for the one who is one. In verse 13, we see that Jesus gives permission. He allows something to happen. Why does Jesus have to do that? Jesus is in control of everything because the battle's already done. Victory will be ultimately realized at the resurrection of Jesus, but Jesus has already won. The battle is over. And this passage is very much about control. Because when you look at verse 7, right after this man falls on his face before Jesus... Legion asks, what have you to do with me, Jesus? Who says that? What have you to do with me, Jesus? It's almost reporting to the general. It's knowing that this is the boss. Why are you here? 
I know who you are, and you are powerful and active. Why are you here? You see, the demons understand this isn't a fight. This is something more like a division of the spoils. The demons, they have their man. They occupy him. But they know that they're losers. And they always knew this. They always knew that they were on borrowed time until Jesus appeared. Because this before them is the victor. Now all that Jesus is left to do in their minds, well, is to give them permission with regards to how they live as losers. They're giving up their property. They're giving up their spoils. The victor has appeared. And Jesus, he permits them to go someplace else, unclean spirits into unclean animals. You see, the focus here is not a battle. The focus here is authority. Because Jesus grants permission. He's the one who is entirely in control. Now think about what the desperate man actually needs. We're told in verse 19 that he needs mercy. And the one who comes to show mercy is not whom you would expect. You would expect someone who is, well, not the general who holds all victory. And not necessarily the great king. But that's who comes. The ruler of the cosmos arrives. And he is the one who applies mercy. He's already won, he's entirely in control, and he comes to assert his authority. Now, the application is quite clear. At the very end, verse 14, things transition a little bit. Now we begin to hear how to understand what exactly is unfolded. We learn to understand that from the perspective of the herdsmen. But we can also draw conclusions from the perspective of the disciples as well. Uh, Mark just makes us hold off until later. But the driving application is for Christians to tell people about Jesus. That really is a driving application. But you need to understand what's happening in this scene. There's a whole lot of control in this passage. The herdsmen, they're satisfied with their business. In fact, the herdsmen, they seem to be profoundly successful at what they do. A normal herd would be 3,000 pigs. They're extremely successful and they're satisfied with how business is unfolding. The demons, they seem to be relatively satisfied with their occupation. They have their man. They'd rather stay in this man and not go to the pigs. The demons seem to be satisfied. The city and the country, the very region, seems to be satisfied. They've uh, dealt with this man. Everyone seems to be relatively in control of what's happening. They've really found, well, they found a contented place. There's a whole lot of satisfaction here. Herdsmen satisfied with business, demons satisfied with their occupation, the city and the country satisfied with their problem-solving abilities. But the driving application here is for the Christian to tell people about Jesus. But part of telling people about Jesus is telling them that their place of control and their place of satisfaction is a charade. It's not real. It's play-acting. Because God's saving purpose in Jesus actually disrupts all of your purposes. And your purposes really need to be focused on Jesus and dealing with him. The herdsmen in verse 14, they saw and they heard everything. And the disciples on the boat, we have to assume, saw and heard everything. And the herdsmen, they go back into the city. We're told they go even into the country. They're telling loudly what they've seen. And what do you think it is that they said? 
Put yourself on the hillside watching this scene unfold before your eyes. And then you carry yourself back into your city. What did you see? You saw that there was this man, Jesus, who authoritatively got out of a boat, took command of a situation. We saw Jesus not only being the center of everything, deliberately coming, but we also saw that our desperate friend, well, Jesus wasn't afraid of him. And the desperate friend wasn't afraid of Jesus. He ran to Jesus, and Jesus didn't jump back up into the boat. Both the desperate friend and the demons seemed to know Jesus. Our desperate friend, from our vantage point, we saw him, and he bowed down before Jesus. He seemed to worship him, and he certainly cried out to him, and he begged him for help. And Jesus Jesus actually removed that desperation. What we had only bound, what we had only, well, dealt with, Jesus, he took care of. And Jesus, he removed the desperation of this man with simply a word. By the way, as Mark tells the story, do you know what he doesn't tell you? As he's going through the story, he doesn't tell you exactly the result of what happened to that desperate man after the demons were sent into the pigs. Do you notice that? Mark doesn't tell us. Who tells us? How do we get that information? The herdsmen. The herdsmen, as they report back, they have more to say. Uh, Everything about uh, Jesus and and what he has done for the desperate man. But notice that uh, what the desperate man did after the demons left is actually reported by the herdsmen. And they say, our friend who is so desperate, he sat. He sat. And he was clothed. Do you think Jesus clothed him? Who clothed him? He was clothed. Just imagine that picture. What if Jesus went over and picked up the man's clothing and clothed him? After Jesus did these things, our desperate friend, he sat and he was clothed. And he was in his right mind. He was sensible. That that word that's used for in his right mind, it, it refers to vocal power. And the herdsmen, perhaps they heard this man speak in a sensible manner. So what did the herdsmen say? They they went back to their city and they went back to the country. This is what they said. Jesus, he took charge and he exercised authority in his very word. He took the desperate and made him not desperate and he clothed and cared for him. If, If you want to boil down what they said, they said this, Jesus came and Jesus had mercy. Now, the result is interesting, right? Because some people actually believe that proclamation, uh, heard and they believed in Jesus right away, and uh, that's perhaps all it took. But perhaps some were curious and they wanted to learn a little bit more. What Mark tells us is he tells us about a certain subset of the audience of the herdsmen that actually come to see for themselves in verses 15 through 17. And these are individuals who they learned something, and they learned something that they actually didn't like. That when Jesus does what he does, their plans are secondary. Again, like you, I don't know why Mark would only give us this response of the preaching of the herdsmen, but this is what Mark tells us. He wants us to hear this loud and clear, that the gospel is good news, but the gospel has tragically bad implications because the gospel takes all of our purposes and makes them secondary. That's the only way we can explain what happens in verse 17. You see, the herdsmen, they had, a good, they had a good plan. They had control and they were satisfied. They knew how to make money. And Jesus removed that from them. 
And the herdsmen are certainly a part of the party that have a good plan for dealing with this desperate man. And by dealing with this desperate man, they don't have to deal with him. They ignore him, cast him to the side, and go about their happy lives filled with control and satisfaction. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is disruptive. It takes your purpose out of the equation. It takes your purpose for your relationship with others and your purpose for for your control of your own destiny and removes that from the equation. You see, the driving application for the disciples is very, very clear. Look at verse 20. Jesus gives this once desperate man a task. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. He has had mercy on you. There's the application, Christian. It's for you and it's for me. But do this with wise eyes. Know that the preaching of the gospel is actually a proclamation to the world that says that the world's plans are secondary. All of your dreams, all of your hopes, all of your control, it's pushed back to the side so that you might be subservient to Jesus Christ. His mercy is the only mercy that heals you. So when we ask ourselves very quickly, before we pray, how do we do this? How do I proclaim a gospel with this kind of knowledge in my mind that God's saving purpose in Jesus actually disrupts every other human purpose? How do I do this? Well, you have to know the gospel. You have to know that the gospel is about Jesus. The herdsmen had a message with Jesus at the very center. Jesus controlled the scene. Jesus was authoritative. Jesus won before he showed up and he granted permission. The way, that you, the way that you do this, proclaim the gospel, knowing that the gospel is disruptive, is rightly understanding that the gospel is about Jesus and his work alone. That is salvation, the work and the power of Jesus. But you also have to do this. Not only do you have to know the gospel, you have to experience the gospel yourself. You have to have a vital relationship with Jesus in such a way that you know what it's like You know what it's like for all of your purposes to come to nothing, but the purpose of Jesus to come to everything. Think about this man who has been healed by Jesus. His proclamation of the gospel is going to be a little bit different than the herdsman's proclamation of the gospel. Wouldn't you agree? Because he's experienced it. He knows what it feels like to pursue another solution. He knows what it feels like to not receive mercy. He knows what it feels like to have his entire destiny uh, circumscribed in ugly, haunted ways. You have to know the gospel's about Jesus, but you also have to experience the gospel yourself, that you might have the vital kind of testimony that this man would have. So there's two two applications right there that are clear in verse 20. But there's a third application, and that's this. You have to speak. Speaking, proclaiming, is all over this passage. In fact, the word for preaching shows up in the passage. Go and proclaim. You have to know that the gospel is about Jesus. You have to have a vital relationship with Jesus in the experience of the gospel, and you have to speak. Because God's saving purpose in Jesus, though it disrupts every other human purpose, well, it's the only mercy that the lost have. Well, let me uh, close us in prayer before we carry on in our service. Please pray with me. Our Father, we thank you and we love you that you make yourself known.
but we love you that you save us, that you would desire to save us, that you would come to us, that when others are afraid to come to us, when we are afraid even of our own sin, you step out of the boat and come to us. And we thank you that your mercy is eternal. We ask that you would give us strength, that we might know the gospel, that we might experience the implications of the gospel in our lives every moment, and that we might speak to the world that they would know that dealing with Jesus is the very center of their existence and the very hope of their flourishing. In your name, Jesus, amen.